welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this episode, we will start off by checking in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy, editor and publisher of Family Tree Magazine, who will be telling us about a handy new book that's going to keep you in the know. Then we'll cover the latest happenings in the genealogy world with the genealogy insider blogger, Diane Haddad. Next, we'll talk with author Sharon DiBartolo Carmack, who will be sharing her top tips on how to leave a rich record of your own life for your descendants. Then in the 101 Best Website segment, I will talk with Daniel Horowitz from the My Heritage website. And then our own in-house preservationist, Grace Dobush, will bring us another installment of Safekeeping. And finally, in the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Allison and I will be sharing some ideas from the upcoming class on reverse genealogy that I'll be teaching. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. Time once again to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. Well, Allison, I know that you've been very busy as usual this last month, but I know you have a couple of things for us that are new and up and coming. What have you got first? Well, we just put to bed another book. Um, this one is something that I think will come in handy for most people. It's called The Family Tree Pocket Reference. Oh, great. Now, I assume it's what it sounds like. It's something that we can just carry with us. And what kind of references will it have in it? It is pocket size, about four by six inches. So you can easily stick it in your research tote bag or your backpack or your purse um, or your pocket when you are going out on research ventures. And it's designed to be just a handy guide to all the little facts and figures and items that you might be looking up or want to know while you're doing your research. So to give a few examples, we have lots of glossaries in there to terminology that might be involved in different records or research situations. There's some charts and lists of different facts and figures related to historical time frames. For example, you know, timelines of historical diseases or a glossary of occupation. So if you come across things in your research, you can quickly flip to that section of the book and look up to see what it is. Ooh, that sounds great. Kind of answers those little nagging questions so you can kind of keep moving. Exactly. Just lots of little answers at your fingertips so that you don't have to go hunting too hard to find them. And one thing that I think is kind of a a neat part of the book is that we obviously can't cover everything that everybody would want to know, especially Mm -hmm. not in a literally pocket-sized book. (laughs) Um, So we included a section at the back for my favorite references, and that's just got an area where you can write down things that you want to refer to often. So if you come across something in your own research and you don't know the answer and you find it out, but you're not sure you'll remember next time, you can record it there and it'll always be a part of the book for you to refer to later. That would be a perfect place to maybe write some website passwords. Oh, there's nothing worse. You go to the library or the Family History Center and then you realize, oh, I don't have access to, you know, some website that I usually get to from home. Absolutely. That's something that people often um, need to refer to pretty frequently. And even, um, you know, frequently accessed websites, the URLs, if it's something that's bookmarked on your computer and you're at the library and you don't know it off the top of your head, how handy would it be to have that written down in your book? 
Now that's at shopfamilytree.com. It's the Family Tree Pocket Reference. Correct. It will be actually not available um, until the end of the month. However, we are taking pre-orders, so you can get a special deal there on that if you order it in advance. Oh, great. And you guys run some weekly specials, don't you? We do. Um, In fact, at shopfamilytree.com, there's now a weekly shop special tab that you can see as you navigate through the shop. And we'll always have the most recent sale or offer there um, to get instant access to that. Usually we're running something at a pretty good price, so definitely check that out. And one other thing that's kind of come up this month is we're celebrating an anniversary, aren't we? We sure are. It's the second anniversary of this very podcast. Yay! Happy birthday to the Family Tree Magazine podcast. Happy birthday. (laughs) It's been a lot of fun working on this podcast for the past couple of years, and I hope that our listeners have taken quite a few nuggets away from the interviews that we do every month. I know it's been such a treat for me to get to talk to the authors. You know, you read their articles and they can't pack everything into them, even as extensive as they are. And so they always have those little tidbits for us to take it just another step further. It's been a lot of fun. And um, I hope those of you listening, if you're enjoying the podcast, get out there and share it with your friends and your family, maybe mention it on your blog. Um, We'd love to have you get the word out. It's been very exciting, Allison, to see the listenership really grow over these last two years. It has. We have so many more people listening now than we did two years ago. And what I think is so great is there's more recognition in the genealogy community as a whole. I I will go to conferences now and people will say, hey, I recognize your voice. I heard you on the Family Tree (laughs) Magazine podcast. So that's pretty neat. And I'm definitely excited to know that so many people find the information worth listening to every month. Well, it's been a joy for me to be a part of it, and I look forward to uh, another year with lots of other great topics we're going to be covering. I know you have some really good things coming up in your editorial calendar for the rest of the year, so we'll keep an eye on it and keep an ear on it. Thanks so much, Allison. Thank you, Lisa. now for some news from the blogosphere with the genealogy insider and managing editor, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi. So what's new in the world of genealogy this month? Well, just recently, I blogged about the War of 1812 Pension Records Digitization Initiative. That's kind of a mouthful that (laughs) the Federation of Genealogical Societies, or FGS, has started, and they are hoping to raise some money, um, let's see, $3.7 million to do this digitization by the sesquicentennial of the War of 1812, which is, of course, in 2012. Right, right. So That's a big yeah. in- undertaking, isn't it? It is, and they say that digitizing each page will cost about 50 cents. So for all the records, that um, it's about 180,000 files that adds up to the $3.7 million, and they hope to have the actual digitizing done by the sesquicentennial of the end of the war, which is in 2015. Now, what kind of details will people find about their soldiers if they're listed there? There's all kinds of stuff. They have um, information about where the person lives, 
their marriage information because often it would be a widow or a survivor, a child, who would apply for the pension if the soldier had died. Military service information, pension amounts, you can find out uh, whether the person had claimed a bounty land warrant. So all kinds of things in these records. Oh, you bet. And I know that NARA gets, what did you write in your blog, about 3,000 requests a year for photocopies. So there is a demand. (laughs) Yeah, they're not microfilmed. So, you know, every time someone sends a request, NARA goes and they find the paper record and then they copy it. Exactly. So this would be a great resource. Well, I'm going to have a link to your blog post because it is a great resource. It's um, FGS Plans War of 1812 Pension Records Digitization Project. And there, if you want to actually learn more about what is a pension file, Diane has a link there that will lead you to some more information to really get familiar with this record group because we might be getting some access to it. That would be fantastic. Yeah, and it's one of the more underused military records. Exactly. And then, you know, Along the lines of trying to get record groups digitized and available, um, that kind of falls in line with some of the work that other groups are doing trying to help out endangered records and facilities. Tell us more about that. You were blogging about that this month. Right. It was kind of a, it was a little bit of a um, depressing post. Two preservation organizations had released their annual lists of 10 endangered sites. So the Civil War Preservation Trust they have on their list this year Gettysburg, um, Wilderness, Virginia, Pickett's Mill, Georgia, so a whole list of sites that are threatened by development or um, nowadays especially lack of funding to care for these places. You know, some of them are threatened by closure and, you know, it would it would really reduce our ability to learn about Civil War history. So it is a very sad threat. And the National Trust for Historic Preservation also released a list of endangered sites, so many of the historical sites that people treasure. um, And they also included a battlefield on their site, also Wilderness, Virginia. Wow. You wouldn't really think of a place like Gettysburg being endangered uh, or not getting the the ongoing support that it needs to to stay, um, you know, operational and open to the public. Right. Oftentimes um, what happens is they'll want to build, you know, a huge shopping facility right at the entrance to the battlefield. That's what's going on with wilderness. And um, and it would just damage the kind of respectful aura that these treasure places have. Absolutely. And, and along the lines of some of these locations, libraries are also struggling, aren't they? Right. The same um, budget issues a lot of states and cities have slashed the budgets for the libraries, and so they're having to lay off staff and reduce hours and, um, you know, reduce the amount of records preservation that the libraries can do. I think recently um, blogs have been writing about the Michigan State Library we heard about last year on Boston. The New York Public Library has issued an appeal, a fundraising appeal. So people who use these libraries, and even if you don't use these libraries, you use other genealogy libraries, you know, write to state representatives and tell them how important these places are and, and go use the libraries too. Exactly. We're all in this together. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, I will have links to both of Diane's important blog posts in the show notes. And uh, I hope that you take a look and, and maybe find a way to get involved. Diane, thank you so much for keeping us up to date on all this. You're welcome. Thank you.
It's frustrating when we run up against those gaps in our ancestors' past where they just don't seem to keep record of important events in their lives. Well, in today's Top Tips segment, Sharon DiBartolo Comrack is here to talk about some of the things that you can do to document your life and become the ancestor that you always wished that you had. Welcome back to the show, Sharon. Thank you. Great to have you here. You know, it's pretty easy to get so wrapped up in our own research that we forget to document our own lives for future generations. What kinds of things should we be doing to be better ancestors to our descendants? Well, there are lots of things we can be doing to be better ancestors for our descendants. And just like we can't get some records for our parents or grandparents because of privacy laws, our descendants are going to run into the same problem. And we also don't know what the privacy laws of the future are going to be like. There may be even more restrictions than what we're accustomed to right now. But you always are able to get your own records. Mm -hmm. So just like you would collect records on an ancestor, think about all the records from the time you were born until now that you would have created in your lifetime, your birth record, your baptism record, your uh, school records, your medical records, because nobody else can get your medical records but you, um, your any land records from houses that you've owned, any kind of thing like that, be gathering those records now while while you're you're still able to and still alive to do it. Boy, that's a great point because it would be so much easier for us to do it. And and we probably have a good sense of where to go to get those, where they are, kind of scattered around the house. And it uh, probably will save our descendants, obviously, a lot of time. Plus, they get the big picture of who we were and what we did. Absolutely. And for those records that we don't have copies of, we can be requesting them and getting copies of them now. And a good example, we just went through the 2010 census. Mm -hmm. Hopefully everybody photocopied your census and put it in with your genealogy files after you filled it out and before you mailed it back in. But if you didn't, you can reconstruct the censuses over your lifetime that are restricted, that people aren't going to have access to for 72 years. In my article, I give a website where you can go back and see all the questions that were asked for each census year. And so, for example, the first census that I'll appear on as an adult was 1980. Well, fortunately, I did keep a copy of it, but if I hadn't, I can go to this website see what questions were asked in 1980, and reconstruct that census and what the household was like at that period of time, putting a note in my files that that's what I've done, and then that information is available to my descendants sooner than 72 years. Oh, what a fantastic idea. I wish I had thought to hand those to all my grandparents (laughs) and to do that, but but at least we could start now. Um, and you mentioned your your article, which is called Saving Yourself. Um, that's kind of what we're discussing here. And, and in Saving Yourself in the August 2010 issue, you also talked about journals and diaries. It's obviously wonderful if you find a journal or a diary for an ancestor, and certainly our descendants might be interested in ours. What could we do to further embellish that to make them more meaningful to our descendants? Okay, well, first of all, if you haven't been keeping a diary or a journal, it's never too late to start. You can always start today, tomorrow, whenever, but you can always start doing a journal or a diary. 
If you do have diaries and journals from your past, if they're anything like mine, sometimes the notations are, are very short or you only put first names of people, you didn't put their last names, uh, you only put really brief information. Right. Well, you can go back just like you would with an ancestor's diary. If you got that, you would annotate it by explaining who this person was, you would research who that person was, and you would explain who the people are who are mentioned in the diary. You might add historical context. Well, you can do the exact same thing with your own diaries. Pull a, a, a diary from any time period. Even if you don't remember the event the way it happened, if you just start writing and saying, you know, I really don't, re if you transcribe that entry and say, you know, I really don't remember that and, mm -hmm. and just start letting it flow, you'd be amazed at what you do end up remembering. I am working on a project right now where I'm using some of my diary entries, and that's exactly what I did. It's like, I really don't remember that, but boy, once I started writing and just saying what I don't remember, it was amazing what came back that I do remember. Yeah, it's almost like you tap into another little part of your brain where you've been storing that. <laughs> and another terrific idea that you had in the article was kind of piggybacking on that, which is if, if you've got record of, a, of an event and you're thinking, gosh, I don't really remember that. I mean, I guess I wrote about it. Tell us your idea about videotaping other people in our family to help bring those memories out. Exactly. If your parents are still alive or aunts, uncles, whoever it may be who remember you as a child, just like you would do an oral history interview with them about their life, sit down and do an interview with them and ask them to tell you about things that they remember about you as a child and you growing up. Of course, you'll hear all those horrible, horrible stories that you don't want to remember. Like my mother loves to tell the story about when I was in kindergarten, I wet my pants. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, that, that's just a given that she's going to tell that story. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, there, but there are stories that they will remember about you that either you don't remember or they'll remember a different um, point of view of it or, or a different perspective on that story. And that's something that when you're writing your own life story, you can work it in and say, you know, I don't really remember this, but, you know, Uncle Harry remembers it or, or I remember it this way, but Aunt Susie remembered it happening this way. Uh -huh. And so it just gives a, a whole new perspective. And those people are going to be gone, just like when we sat to interview them about our ancestors, once they go, their memories of you go. Exactly. And I I think that's one of the traumatic things when we lose our parents is on an un, a subconscious level, we realize that they are taking to the grave with them the living memory of us as children that we don't remember. And... You know, we still have aunts and uncles and other people who remember us when we were little. So interview them. Gosh, that is such a wonderful point. And that's true now that I think about it. It is because there's only so many people in the world who really knew you at that time, right? And even siblings, even though yeah. they remember you as a, as a child, they were off. You know, I don't have any siblings. So, you know, fortunately, my parents are still alive so I could interview them. But um, when I've talked to other people... And 
the sibling, like when I interviewed my father's brother and tried to get stories about my father when he was little, Mm -hmm. and my uncle said, well, you know, we really didn't hang out with the same people. We didn't hang out with the same friends. We were in different grades. And so their only memory, his only memory of my father was basically just the hour or two at dinner. You know, he didn't really have, a, you know, that many memories because they just didn't hang out in the same circles. So even though you have siblings who remember you as a kid, they don't have the adult memory right. like a parent or an aunt or an uncle would. Oh, so true. And that tends to, to be more complete. And another um, neat suggestion that you had here in the article was to go into Google Books and browse through that Life magazine that, of course, is all digitized now. And it would be very interesting to go into some of those key years in your childhood, look through it, and then it may evoke memories of those world events that were going on or things. And you go, oh, yes, that oh, that's right. I forgot about that. And you could write about that or record your memories about it. Exactly. And one of the things I was doing, um, because I've been pulling together notes so that I could write a childhood memoir at some point, and I had remembered in 1964 we had gone to the World's Fair in New York, but that's all I remembered is that we went. Yeah. And going to Life magazine or just Googling the New York World's Fair of 1964, and could see pictures of it that or illustrations or whatever or descriptions of some of the exhibits that's what brought the memories back that's when i thought oh yeah i remember that and i remember this and and everything so yeah anything that you can use to trigger your memory by all means that's what you should do well if you would like to learn more about preserving your own genealogical legacy check out sharon's article it's called saving yourself It's in the August 2010 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Thanks so much, Sharon. Again, wonderful ideas. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate it. In our 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots list, we are going to take you on a tour of the MyHeritage.com website listed in the category 10 Stellar Sites for Storing and Sharing. And our tour guide today is Daniel Horowitz, Genealogy and Translation Manager at MyHeritage.com. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Hi, Lisa. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us. Why don't you just start us off by giving us kind of a brief overview of what the MyHeritage website is all about. Sure. Where MyHeritage is a social network or a family network, better to say, where people can start building their family trees and use a lot of the tools that we have to uh, help them improve their research and get further with their uh, family tree and genealogy research. And you have a couple of different tools and resources there. Tell us about those. Um, I know that a lot of people are familiar with the, the family tree. Tell us about that. Well, the family tree, you can build it either online or with our uh, software family tree builder. And you can publish it for free also on the website till 250 people. And that will be the first step for everybody uh, to do because then we can apply uh, other of our tools like the smart matches, which is uh, a search engine, an inside search engine that we have, 
where we try to match the people that you have in your family tree with other people in our database. And we're trying to find relatives or other people that are researching your same branches. Oh, that's terrific. It's amazing how many great things can come about when you get a chance to connect with other people researching that same family, as well as, I assume, distant cousins. <laughs> yes, that's precisely the idea, because uh, you may not be aware that in another country or another language, as my heritage handles 36 languages and uh, very, very soon uh, a few more. Uh, so probably somebody is working in your same uh, family tree and you don't know about it. So that's a big advantage. That means that you really are reaching people in other countries who you might norm normally not have contact with because you have the ability to translate for them as well and, and make those connections. And you mentioned that there's the option online, but then there's a program that we can actually download to our own computer and then do it from our desktop. Is that right? That's correct. The program is called Family Tree Builder, and you can download for free from our website. And there is no limitation of people that you can put on your family tree with the software. The only limitation will be uh, the amount of people published on the website. And we're talking now for uh, the basic account or the free account. So you can build your family tree and put as many people as you want uh, on the software. And you can also upload to the, prog to the program uh, photos, documents, videos, and all kind of media that uh, you have collected through the years. Oh, and that would be so much fun. Now, in addition to all of this family tree building and, and including your photographs and that type of thing, um, you also sort of have a, a genealogy search engine there, don't you, to help us kind of further our research? Mm, that's correct. On the website, on the genealogy section, we have uh, what we call the genealogy super search engine. And what it does is whenever you type in the first and the last name of the person, and you can also go to the advanced and put a little bit more of information if you have the birth and death uh, date and place, we will, we will look for that information into more than 1,500 databases, genealogy and not genealogy related that you probably would know about them. And we will bring you the exact amount of results that we found on those databases. And then you can simply click on the link and go straight to the result page and see which are the results that we, we just found for you. Now, we just spoke about the software and we also include on the software a, a small version of this search engine and we call it the Smart Research. And over there, we do the same. We try to uh, look for relative from your family tree. The advantage is that we can do that for specific people or for the entire tree. And you don't have to tape all the names and all the information. And then we uh, concentrate in only about 100 of the best genealogy databases that they are currently online. Wow, that's great. So you can really add on and continue to make progress. Um, tell us, you know, because there are other websites that do family trees and have search engines, um, how would you explain it to a genealogist listening? Why should they use MyHeritage.com? Well, first, because uh, no other website has the amount of free tools 
and premium tools that we offer uh, to connect him with other people researching probably the same branches of the same people. Secondly, the languages, which is very important to contact and to share information with other people. We have a lot of stories that families are getting together and then sharing the information thanks to my heritage, although they don't know each other language. We have people in the States or in South America getting in contact with Russian. And in both sides of the world, everybody can see all the information in their own language because they just change uh, the, the interface of the website. Plus, of course, all the charge and, and, and the graphics and, and the reports that you can build either from the website or from the software. All great reasons to try it out. And I think that that international angle is is really key. Um, I think that's something very unique that you do there that really broadens our ability to share. Finally, do you have any tips for us? You know, we all have a limited amount of time we can spend online. Any tips for getting the most out of using your website? Well, the first step will be, as I said, to, to post your family tree online on, on the website and try to be a little bit of patient uh, and keep visiting and keep sharing uh, that information with all your relative or with all your your friends, your family, your everybody that you, you may know. Uh, you never know where you can find a, a connection. And of course, uh, try to keep always looking into the new repositories and the new databases that we are using either on the search engine or the different tools uh, that we update continuously. So to keep coming back, even if we don't find it the first time, check back because there's always something new, it sounds like. Exactly. Wonderful. Oh, Daniel, thank you so much. This has been a great tour of MyHeritage. And uh, those of you listening will have a link in the show notes for you so that you can go check it out and post your tree and see what you might find. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks to you, Lisa. My pleasure. Hi, everybody. This is Grace, the preservation expert here at Family Tree Magazine. If you're anything like me, you've probably got a closet or a basement or an attic that's just full of stuff. Old school papers, shoeboxes of photos, maybe even original records just wasting away. I'll tell you how to preserve your own legacy for future generations in this edition of Safekeeping. First off, let's do some inventory. You can't come up with a plan until you know exactly what you have. Drag everything out of storage and don't be afraid to take over the dining room temporarily. Just make sure to let your family know what you're up to so they don't try to recycle all your heirlooms. It helps to take notes of what you've got and work up a system for storing everything. I personally like to make piles based on the kind of item it is. You know, one stack for school papers, one stack for photos, another for vacation souvenirs, but you can organize it any way you like. We've got an heirloom inventory form that's pretty helpful that you can download on our site at familytreemagazine.com slash freeforms. Next up, make sure that everything you have is in good shape to be stored properly. You might have to do some cleanup. 
Generally, with paper products and photographs, it's just damage control. Use a soft, dry cloth or a soft brush to wipe off any dust or dirt. With more sensitive items like antique clothing, you might want to consult a conservator before trying to clean it yourself. I wrote an article called Preservation Rx in the December 2009 issue of Family Tree Magazine about keeping your heirlooms healthy. Family Tree Magazine Plus members can read the whole article online. Just visit the podcast show notes page for the link. When you know how much stuff you've got to store, it's time to get some supplies. Letting your heirlooms languish in acidic cardboard boxes is just a recipe for disaster. Archival suppliers sell envelopes, boxes, and cases of every size and sort to fit any type of heirloom you might have. Archival Methods, Gaylord Brothers, and Hollinger Metal Edge are a few online shops you might want to check out. And finally, it's time to pack up your things. Keep a copy of that heirloom inventory you made with the boxes. That'll help you keep track of things. And don't dare put those boxes back in the basement. Heirlooms, especially paper and fabric, are really sensitive to temperature changes and humidity. A much better place for them to live is a closet in the main part of your house. That way, all your hard work will ensure that your legacy lives on. Remember to visit FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash podcast for more preservation resources and links to all the suppliers I mentioned. Until next time, stay safe. In today's Family Tree University Crash Course segment, we are going to talk about Reverse genealogy, which flies in the face a little bit in terms of our normal approach to genealogy, which is, of course, starting with the current day and working backwards. And here to join us in the conversation is Allison Stacy. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. So I have been having a really good time teaching the reverse genealogy class, which is part of the brand new Family Tree University system. And it's, it's been a really interesting one in, in an area where I think a lot of people really haven't explored much. Well, that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you about that today, Lisa. Um, It is something that people don't necessarily think of because, like you mentioned before, they're so tuned in to looking backwards and going generation to generation, especially if that's, you know, the way that, or it is the way that we teach people to do genealogy. Mm -hmm. But the concept of reverse genealogy, of course, is, you know, at some point you get stuck going backward and going forward is actually a way to kind of help you go further back in time. And I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit more about the principles that you're teaching in the course, in particular, how you can find living relatives and how that can help you break through a brick wall. Well, I liken it to kind of if you were driving down an alley and, you know, you ran up against a brick wall, what would you do? You'd throw it in reverse. But of course, reverse for the genealogist is actually coming forward, which is kind of ironic. (laughs) So now that we're kind of spinning around in circles, but, but the truth is, is that sometimes, you know, coming back forward really can get you around that roadblock so that you can go back. But of course, as you can imagine, coming forward gets trickier because when we get a, something like a death certificate, and then we can work back from there because it's telling us everything that's occurred up to that point. And of course, that's the nature of records, isn't it? It's recording what's already happened in the past. So mm-hmm. not too many records out there where you get a recording of what's going to happen in the future. So you can come forward. <laughs> um, but there are ways to do it. 
Um, and one of the things we talk about in the class is the, the family community of your ancestor, which is, you know, we think of our ancestor and their parents and their parents. But there's all these sidelines, you know, the brothers and the sisters and the wives and the husbands and the cousins. And sometimes if we come forward and go down the line of an uncle and search out those cousins and then come back, then it will give us the information we need to push our own ancestor further back. Absolutely. And and all of those collateral lines, of course, are um, the potential for cousins that you might be able to connect with today who might have information about your family history that you wouldn't find anywhere else. You had a good example in the class of a cousin that you had tracked down and really had to do some sleuthing to be able to find her. I did. It's amazing that we can lose track of somebody in one generation or even a decade, just a couple of years. And interestingly enough, in my husband's family, we had that same situation where there were some first cousins. And as I asked around him and his brothers and sisters, nobody knew where these people were. And yet I knew that their grandfather had lived with that line of the family up until his death. So my guess was there were records, there were probably even photographs and things that they may have that we haven't seen before. And uh, so I incorporated a lot of these techniques. And what's interesting is there are records, even though we were talking about, you know, most records are recording the past. There are certain kinds of records that we can use to try to track down people that are living today. For example, licenses. You know, you have to get a license to practice being a beautician or a pilot or anything else. And those are public records. The DMV here in the United States allows some information to be public, even a fishing license. Did you know that you can look up in many states the fishing license and you will get that person's name, address, and sometimes even a relative? It's crazy. That's really amazing and definitely some place that a genealogist would probably never think to look otherwise um, without having that suggestion. Exactly. You almost have to kind of be a private investigator at the same time that you're being a genealogist. You know, and the other thing is, is that we need to sit down and really think about what did we know about the person that we're looking for? In our case, there was the first cousin. And one of the things that my husband's sister told me was, all I remember was she loved art. You know, she was always painting something. And so when I had done some Google searches, some other, you know, site searches, and it kind of pinpointed general area, I went and tracked down where are the art galleries in those areas. And I started sending out emails, and that was one of the ways that I made contact with her. That's very clever. Well, I think that people have a lot of good information and strategies to learn from this class, and I hope that listeners will go and check out the course description on FamilyTreeUniversity.com. Lisa is instructing this class um, right now and will be teaching a future session. So go on there, check it out, and hopefully we'll see you there. Yep, we'd love to see you in class. Thanks so much for joining me for this June 2010 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis at blog.familytreemagazine.com insider. 
Next, head on over to familytreemagazine.com slash podcast to find the show notes for this episode, which will include information and website links for everything we covered on today's episode, including a link to Shop Family Tree, where you can pick up the August 2010 issue that includes Sharon's article called Saving Yourself. And don't forget to visit the MyHeritage website, where you can start building your own family tree today at MyHeritage.com. And finally, head on over to FamilyTreeUniversity.com, where you can browse the upcoming classes, including the ones I'm going to be teaching on reverse genealogy and Google search. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at ftmpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I do hope that you'll visit me over at my website at genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcasts, the Genealogy Gems podcast, and Family History Genealogy Made Easy. Both shows are also available in iTunes. And until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. 